following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Please turn your Bible to Galatians chapter 4. In my garage are several sets of training wheels for bicycles that my six older children have used at one time or another to help them gain the skills of riding a bike. And there's at least one set yet remaining for when our youngest child comes of age. And uh, I I believe that, that Paul, Paul in our text, is describing the nature of the law and the history of redemption akin to training wheels in preparing God's people to experience their freedom in Christ as his faithful followers. The law is necessary and good, but not an end in itself. God's design, his design for the law is that it be internalized in the heart, that his people might live by grace through faith. Let us hear God's word, Galatians 4, verses 1 through 7. Paul writes, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for this remarkable good news. That we are no longer slaves, but sons and daughters. Heirs of your grace through our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you might grant us wisdom and insight into your word this night, as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in less than a year's time, my oldest son will receive from the state of Pennsylvania the privilege of a driver's permit. And then for at least a period of six months, he will be permitted to drive as long as he has a guardian, likely Myself or my wife, who will sit in that front passenger seat and oversee his driving experience to help him gain the skills of becoming a responsible driver. And then, in time, Lord willing, he will pass his exam and gain the privilege to drive without 
being accompanied by a guardian. And by that time, he will hopefully have mastered and internalized the rules of the road and gained the privilege of becoming a, a responsible driver, enjoying the freedom of operating an automobile on our nation's roads and highways. Now, this freedom does not mean that he can ignore the law. Rather, he must uphold the law lest he suffer the consequences of law-breaking. I believe it's in this spirit that, that Paul is helping believers to understand the necessity and temporal nature of the law as a, as a child's guardian for the Christian life, as we saw last week from Pastor Walker in Galatians 3. And yet in our passage, Paul also warns against looking towards the law and depending upon it in the wrong way, rather than pressing forward and enjoying the freedom that God grants his children to live by faith in obedience to the gospel of grace. Paul challenges us not to live slavishly under the law, is that we measure the Christian life according to rules and regulations, rather to live as heirs of grace, to embrace our new relationship with God as adopted children. Now, our passage can be neatly divided into two themes, one of coming of age in Christ and growing on to maturity in Christ, looking back upon the age of the law of the Moses, of what we might call the coming of age period of God's people, we see this distinction in verses 1 through 3 between the proper use of the law and its misuse. Verses 1 and 2, Paul outlines the proper use of the law, its function and its limitations. You recall last time from chapter 3, verse 24, that Paul describes the law of Moses as a child's guardian set in place by God until the coming of Christ. And it's in our passage that Paul elaborates further to describe that the the heir, the heir, when the heir is a child, is under strict rules and guidelines. As a child, essentially has no more privileges privileges and freedoms than a mere household slave. And Paul goes on to tell us that while the heir is the owner of everything, But by nature of his youth and his immaturity, he must be managed and controlled in a season of training and preparation until the time comes for him to exercise his rightful authority over the estate. And of course, a a wise and loving father in the ancient world would assign a, a household servant to be a guardian to protect and train and guide his youthful heir until the time comes for him to assume proper ownership at the age of maturity. And, and like any child, and a young heir would test the limits and challenge his guardians and whine and complain under the constraints and burdens of the rules. Such a young heir will undergo growing pains as he learns to control his desires and passions to grow and meet the expectations of an heir to own the whole estate. The wise head of household will discipline his son with the proper means of correction. 
And I believe that it's, it's with this in mind that Paul sees the entire history of God's people under the tutelage of the law from the time of Moses till the coming of Christ. And so a proper understanding of the law and its restrictions is to realize that it was, it was set in place for guidance, for training, for protection and preparation until God's purposes for redemption had matured with the coming of his son. You see, the advent of Christ changed the nature of the relationship between God's people and God's law. All believers in Christ are called to look to Christ by faith and trust that Christ has fulfilled the law. And that in response, we're called to live out a relationship with the Father without unhealthy dependencies and attachments to the law of Moses, which Paul applies to circumcision and dietary restrictions in his struggle with uh, the Judaizers and the Pharisees. Now, verses 1 and 2 talk about the proper use of the law. Verse 3, we believe, exposes the misuse of God's law. It's in this verse that Paul, he makes a statement that we were like children enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. Pastor and late scholar John Stott says that there's one of two ways that we can understand this language. It could speak, could be translated as the elementary things, referring to the Old Testament period as our rudimentary education that was completed with the coming of Christ. However, Paul has already made that point, and he seems to be pressing on, anticipating the warning he's going to give in verses 8 through 11. And so, in verse 3, could also be understood to speak of the physical elements in the, in the ancient Greek world. Those spoke of, the, of earth, wind, and fire, or the heavenly bodies which uh, people use to uh, guide their, their seasons for festivals. But, but these physical elements were figurative for other things. As we see in verse 8, where uh, Paul describes our state under these elementary principles as being enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. And our best understanding of this is that Paul is speaking of demons, uh, of evil spirits. And so I, I would interpret what is going on here in chapter 4 is that Paul is essentially saying this, that the devil, the evil one, has taken a good thing, the law of God, and twisted it for his own evil purposes to enslave men and women. You see, it's like, it's like that guardian, the law, was like under the devil's usage, became like an evil guardian that ill-treated the son that tyrannized him in a way that the Father never intended. You see, God intended the law to reveal sin, to drive us to Christ, to train us to love righteousness and to hate wickedness. Satan, however, uses the law also to reveal sin, but to drive people to despair, leaving us in bondage to our guilt and fear seeking to satisfy the law's requirements in our futility. John Stott goes on to write that 
God meant the law as an interim step to man's justification, Satan uses it as a final step to his condemnation. God meant the law to be a stepping stone to liberty. Satan uses it as a dead end, deceiving us into supposing that from its fearful bondage, there is no escape. You recall that in the very beginning, there was but one simple rule for God's people. And when our first parents violated that rule, it brought in curse and chaos into God's good creation. God responded to this problem with a promise to send a redeemer who would come from the seed of Abraham. God formally entered into relationship and adopted his people Israel by giving them the written law to Moses at Sinai. You recall that the law of Moses was essentially ten timeless principles fleshed out in hundreds of case laws. And so the age of the law and the sacrifices were served to, to guide the people of God through a season of adolescent, of adolescence and redemptive history. The coming of Christ ushered in the age of maturity, where God's people were called upon to take up adult-like responsibilities for God's purposes of redemption for the world. We now experience a greater freedom from the law. And yet we would be foolish to break the law in some kind of cavalier manner, just as it would be likewise foolish for the adult heir to bring shame upon his family by neglecting and violating the household code of conduct. You see, the law was not obliterated by the gospel. Rather, God's people now stand in a different relationship to the law with our newfound freedoms secured for us by Christ. You know, I believe that there are many people who, genuine Christians or people who call themselves Christians, that desire rules more than relationship. They truly prefer slavery over sonship. They're like the Israelites who wanted to go back to Egypt, to go back to bondage and under slave masters. You see, freedom and living in a trusting relationship with God, dependent upon God's provision in the wilderness, was frightening, overwhelming. They preferred the predictability of bondage under cruel masters and false gods. There were like some women I know who go back time and time again to abusive men who demean them and rob them of their dignity. And so it is that people will cling to the law, preferring a kind of false security to the joy, the freedom, the real security that we have in Christ. Just tell me what to do is the mantra of the legalist. There are some people who will not embrace the responsible freedom that has been purchased and ransomed by the Son of God. Remember what Jesus told his disciples on the night he was betrayed. I no longer call you servants and slaves, but friends. 
welcoming them as co-workers in his father's harvest fields. And this is a privilege not to be scorned by the weakness of our faith or a timid attachment to rules for security. Well, in verses 1 through 3, we see both the law's proper use and its misuse as we look back upon the coming of age of God's people. But in verses 4 through 7, we come to the season of growing on to maturity through the work of God's Son, the sending of God's Spirit that we might bear fruit in godly sonship. You know, upon decades of reflection since Christ had walked the earth, Paul makes this profound statement in verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. We've now had over two millennia and have much greater profundity at the wisdom of God. For it was at such a time in human history that the second person of the Trinity entered into a unique world, one united by Greco-Roman culture, with ease of transportation, a common language and common commerce and currency, a world uniquely at peace held in place by a strong and the height of strength of the Roman legion. And the world at that time was ripe for change. Greeks and Romans discontented and unsatisfied by the corrupt Roman and Greek and Greek gods. It was a time of great questioning. People were open to a fresh word from God. Many scholars have pointed out in recent times that Our time is perhaps closest in parallel to the first century, unlike any other time in the last two millennia. It is in our time that the world is connected like no other time with the dominance of the English language, the common currency of the American dollar, the ease of travel, the power of communication technologies through the phone and the internet. It was at this opportune time in human history that God sent forth his son to accomplish his will through incarnation, redemption, and adoption. The eternal son, the divine logos, was born of woman. Against the complaints of Jewish monotheists, against the prejudice of Greeks who were opposed to the value of human flesh, the dogma of the Muslims who insist it was beneath God to come to earth. The eternal Son took human flesh. He lived and walked in our midst. He bore our burdens. He endured temptation. He also, Paul says, was born under law, circumcised properly on the eighth day, He participated in the worship and the festivals of his people. He studied the scriptures. He even underwent the baptism of John, though he needed no repentance for himself. What the Pharisees and other zealots failed in their pursuit of piety, Jesus satisfied the righteous requirements of the law. 
he was found guiltless, of violating even a single command. Yet his was not an anxious, fearful, self-righteous, suspicious obedience of a slave towards a stern master. Rather, the joyful, delightful obedience of an eternally beloved son towards his heavenly father. Jesus could sing Psalm 119, the love poem of God's law, speaking of the law not as a grueling burden, but a holy delight. Jesus was born under law to redeem those who were under law. God's people who for ages struggled under the law's tutelage, oppressed both by Satan's deception and the frailty of weak human flesh. You see, it's our selfishness and our idolatrous nature that makes the law a heavy burden, a weight of guilt and shame and fear, dread, regret, anxiety, self-righteousness, pretense, accusation, denial, blame-shifting, abuse, manipulation, is what we do with God's holy law under Satan's deception and the weaknesses of our flesh. And yet through the age of Moses, those who repented who understood God's design for the law, who were driven to their knees with humility and repentance to learn to express faith in the one God who would provide the lamb, the sacrifice of the sins for God's people, the one final sacrifice, the lamb that would take away the sins of the world. See, Jesus not only fulfilled the law's requirements, he also satisfied the requirement of punishment for lawbreakers. He bore the wrath when he hung on the cross, bearing the sins of his people in his body. He paid the ransom at the cost, at the, at the heavy redemption cost. And Jesus bought us back that we might receive adoption as sons. God didn't want slaves. God does not want hired hands. Like young, a young couple yearning with painful frustration in their infertility. God desires children. God set his people free from their bondage in Egypt, not to make them slaves again to the law of Moses. God led them in the wilderness, teaching them to live by faith, to trust in his provision, training them to leave their orphan ways of idolatry and immorality. And God has given us adoption, not because we were worthy. You see, a wealthy landowner in the Greco-Roman world, a childless man, would set his sights on a young man or perhaps a noble servant and adopt him as his rightful heir because he was worthy. But God chooses the least in the eyes of the world. Just as godly parents might travel halfway around the world to adopt an unwanted child from another country, we receive adoption 
because we're needy, not because we're worthy. In verse 6, Paul goes on to describe how we are sons and daughters of God, going back to Galatians 3, 28, where there's no longer male nor female. We can include the comment that we are sons and daughters of God, not only through the sinning of his son, but also because God sent his spirit into the hearts of his children by crying, Abba, Father. Only in recent weeks has my 18-month-old son begun to voice, Dada, Mama. It's only natural for him to utter this cry, seeking attention, seeking his needs be met by the two most important people in his life. But we know from Paul and other places of Scripture that crying out to God as Father is not natural to fallen human hearts. We are objects of God's wrath. We are born slaves of sin, self-centered. But it's the Spirit that sets us free. The Spirit who enters into our hearts that we might cry, Abba, Father. Echoing Paul's writings from Romans 8.15, this cry of Abba, an expression of dependent trust that pleases God. Jesus said, you must be born again. And so true sons and daughters, you know you are a true son or a daughter if you have the spirit-born heart cry, Abba, Father. A spirit-born desire to seek and to please the living God. Rather than turn in on yourself, in self-protection or self-vindication, you look to him alone for grace and for mercy. Rather than cling to the law for one's own righteousness, you claim the alien righteousness of Jesus Christ, the only provision the Father has given to make us right in fellowship with himself. The work of the Son and the work of the Spirit sets us free. We no longer might be slaves, but sons, and if sons, then heirs. Heirs of God who are being, calling, being called heavenward in godly sonship. But the Israelites have been tempted to return to their slavery in Egypt. How are we likewise tempted to go back to slavish ways under the law? We're oftentimes at people who want security and regularity rather than the uncertainty of living by faith, depending upon our daily manna. We want a God that is predictable. Perhaps we want minimal expectations that we're willing to trade in adventure for monotony and not take up kingdom challenges for the Christian life. We may be tempted to excuse ourselves, to recuse ourselves of obligations. We too easily dismiss opportunities for kingdom service. Leave the work to the professionals, we argue. And I believe that we can have a kind of slavish, professional distance with God. Rather than be drawn to him in intimacy, in deep relational fellowship. 
We can let fear rule our hearts rather than let God's overwhelming love burn the dross and refashion us in a way that our flesh does not want to permit. We want things easy. Keep it simple. Just give me the rules. Just tell me what to do. I'll do my duty, but don't expect any more from me. See, a slave is glad to give service, but not his heart. To not yield his allegiance and devotion to his God. Slavish ways is like being a mercenary, a mere soldier for hire, rather than loyally pursuing and following our great God and King to the ends of the world. But how do we put off our slavish ways? How do we live as heirs of God's kingdom? Well, a guardian in the ancient world would have a merciless commitment to drive out weakness and frailty from the rightful heir, to try to discipline out of him his excuse-making, his self-pity, his half-hearted effort, greed, envy, blame games entitlement and gratitude and other flaws that prevent his maturity as the heir of his father's household. True sons and daughters, allow God's word and spirit to go deep into our hearts, dividing soul and spirit to overturn the table of our motives, to tear down false altars, to destroy abominable idols. We must let the law be written on our hearts. To be internalized within us, not in a legalistic code, but rather as guiding principles that continue to drive us to our knees in humility and repentance, rejoicing in the goodness and justice and righteousness of our Heavenly Father. You know, well-loved children do not run and hide from their fathers unless they are playing a game. Well-loved children do not manipulate with or bargain with their fathers. They don't resent trials or discipline, rather they cry out to their their father for comfort. A well-loved son or daughter does not have a perfectionistic drive, is not seeking to perform for the father, but has a genuine desire to please the father, to pursue the father's delight, not driven by rewards, are not motivated by threats, but rather becoming the object of their father's delight, the joy of his presence. It's my understanding that families who bring foster children into their home or who adopt a child oftentimes encounter attachment issues, as experts describe it. You know, a child who has experienced hurt and pain is, has a tendency towards self-protection. And it may be difficult for that child to attach emotionally to his or her adoptive parents. And consequently, adoptive parents oftentimes have to be taught and trained to have patience. To understand that an adopted child will respond differently than one of their own natural-born children. You have to recalibrate their expectations and help adoptive parents to love and to serve and to help this child overcome his inhibitions. Like children, 
who have been mishandled in the foster care system. You and I have been mishandled by the world under the cruel ownership of false gods. We enter into an adoptive relationship with God our Father with attachment issues. We struggle to trust him. We put him to the test. We enter back into patterns of self-pity, rebellion. We seek to manipulate him, manipulate him. All the patterns that we have mastered of years of protecting ourselves in a cursed and hostile world. Aren't you glad that you have a patient father, a gracious father? You will not wear him out. You will not lay that final straw that breaks the camel's back that he's done with you. Our God will not call social services to send us back to the agency. We have a God and Father who is committed to continue to love us, to assure us, to seek after us, to pursue us, to quiet our fears, to woo us back to himself. And he is committed to driving out of us our slavish ways, that we might experience the joy and the responsible freedom that, that becomes true sons and daughters of the living God. God doesn't demand our service. He has provided that service through Jesus Christ. He desires our hearts. God will not take and doesn't need our righteousness. He has offered us the full righteousness of Christ. But like the prodigal son, we have a father who will not permit us to be a slave or to be a hired hand. God only takes back redeemed sons and daughters. Those who insist on servile bondage are rejecting intimacy and rejecting God's plan of redemption that he only provides through faith in Jesus Christ. Wise parents tend to an adopt approach to parenting by applying strict rules and guidelines when children are young and yet gradually loosen up those rules as the child grows on to maturity. Wise parents know that children must own the rules. They must internalize them in order for them to grow on to maturity, to embrace the principles to be equipped to make adult-like decisions in life. Parents want more than just rule followers. They want mature children who are friends, who are in relationship with them. Christian, your heavenly father calls you away from slavery under legalistic rules and rituals into relationship to enjoy eternal fellowship and freedom that has been won and bought by Christ who welcomes us as his brothers and sisters to the household of the living God. Let's pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you that in Jesus Christ 
we are set free from our slavery, from our bondage to the law, from the misuse and confusion of the law, that we are one into an eternal relationship with the living God. And I pray that you would help us to work out these implications, to learn to express our responsible freedom with joyful faith, with delight, with an eternalized law that manifests true godliness and holiness in a way that pleases and brings you delight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.